Yes, you did. Didn't Nikki do a wonderful job for her first time with the children's time? Please report back to Vanessa that it went very, very well. Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Mark, uh, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As Jesus was walking down a road, a man ran up to him. He knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what can I do to have eternal life? Jesus replied, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Be faithful in marriage. Do not steal. Do not tell lies about others. Do not cheat. Respect your father and mother. The man answered, Teacher, I've obeyed all the commandments since I was a young man. Okay? Jesus looked at the man. He liked him and said, Ah, there's one thing you still need to do. Go sell everything you own, give the money to the poor, and you will have riches in heaven. Then come follow me. When the man heard Jesus say this, he went away gloomy and sad because he was very rich. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, It's hard for rich people to get into God's kingdom. The disciples were shocked to hear this. So Jesus told them again, It's terribly hard to get into God's kingdom. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into God's kingdom. Jesus' disciples were even more amazed. They asked each other, how can anyone ever be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, there are some things that people cannot do, but God can do anything. Peter replied, remember, we left everything to be your followers. Jesus told him, You can be sure that anyone who gives up home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or land for me, for the good news, will be rewarded. In this world, they will be given a hundred times as many houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and pieces of land, though they will also be mistreated. And in the world to come, they will have eternal life. But many who are now, who are first now, will be last, and many who are now last will be first. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, thanks be to God. Our scripture this morning is an interesting passage as we now enter what I think of as the discernment season of stewardship. And I'm honored this morning to be asked to speak a little bit about this topic and to share a little bit of my own testimony, my own story with you in regards to stewardship. I've shared this story in different ways with different institutions and congregations, and now I want to offer it to you. As a millennial in ministry, I'm often asked about the giving patterns of my generation and peers, as if by virtue of being a millennial, I'm somehow an expert on all things of my generation. This kind of would constitute my response to that question. When I was around three years old, I remember experiencing my first lesson on stewardship and giving. Now, of course, having a younger sibling helped me understand from a very early age the difference between mine and hers and ours. But ironically, my early lessons on philanthropy didn't come from me from family or from the church. Well, I do remember things from the church growing up like rummage sales and coloring books of Jesus. Stewardship and the church are not my first associations about money and giving. My first formation on stewardship and this idea of philanthropy. The word philanthropy comes from philanthropia, 
like Philio, like the city of Philadelphia, so for love of, and anthropology, people. Philanthropy, for the love of humanity, is what the word philanthropy means. For the love of others, for the love of humankind. This idea of collective responsibility for me didn't come from a pulpit or a Sunday school classroom. As was the case for many of my generation, early lessons about giving, sharing, and philanthropy came not from the church, but from PBS and Sesame Street's The Reverend Big Bird in particular. Sesame Street in the late 80s and 90s was at the peak of its success and was part of the daily, if not hourly, lives of many of my fellow American millennials. Yes, my first lesson about stewardship came from the Reverend Elmo, the Reverend Big Bird, the Reverend Cookie Monster, and the right Reverend Grouch, who I'm convinced was an Episcopalian. For the record, I did consider dressing up as Big Bird this morning, but two problems. One, there's a copyright issue, and the second is I'm not very tall. I also don't want to make a bad first impression here at my new congregation. At the end of every program, after Elmo and Oscar had signed off and the count had finished counting everything there was to count and all the cookies were eaten by the cookie monster, PBS had one more word for us, a ritual of sending a benediction of gratitude, and it went something like this. This program was made possible by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and by contributions to your PBS station from... Viewers like you. you. Thank you. Is this familiar to any of you? You mean that these friends and educators... Oscar, Elmo, Big Bird, The Count, Reading Rainbow, Ken Burns, Nova, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, The American Experience, were made possible and animated by someone like me? Someone else is out there, just like little old me? That is such a powerful political thought for a youngster. Viewers like you. With our powers combined, we can make things like TV or community happen. Really, that little phrase, viewers like you, had two very important effects on my early, what I call it, philanthropic imagination. The first was an immediate visualization of all of the viewers like me out there. I remember as a young gay kid that this lesson from the fundraising wing of PBS was incredibly powerful, that there were others like me out there sitting in front of their TV screens wondering about Bert and Ernie. Are they? Could they be viewers like me? The first lesson was very important. You are not alone out there, and you are collectively powerful. I believe that subconscious message is probably why that little phrase, viewers like you, sticks with so many of us. So what can the church learn about fundraising from PBS? we can learn the power of reminding you that you are, in fact, the institution. First Church Fairfield is more than Tiffany Windows, I have to tell you. It's you. The viewers, the worshipers, the prayers, the contributors, the congregation, it's all you. Viewers like you make this possible. 
The second lesson is the power of a well-timed thank you. There is a full three-second pause before the words thank you flash across the screen. There is so much power in saying thank you at the right time and repeatedly. And yes, the church, like PBS, needs to say thank you every week and every day for your generosity. Nothing is owed to us as an institution from members as expected. It is all in my mind in the category of the miracle of philanthropy, the miracle of the love of humanity. Everything is given in freedom and in love. So yes, thank you for whatever you pledge for making this place possible. A confession, no matter which institution I'm part of, the church in Colorado, in Guilford, now ADL, I run the stamp budget way up with thank you notes. I have a compulsion for writing thank you notes because writing a thank you is always worthwhile. This worship service, Christian education classes, sermon, song, choir, piano, Tiffany windows, refugee resettlement, community potluck, open and affirming theology was made possible by the Holy Spirit and by contributions to this local church from viewers, people, individuals like you. Thank you. I dug a little deeper into this, and sometimes when I'm doing a sermon, I like to run a Google search just to see what kind of like the popular thinking on a topic is out there. So I decided to put viewers like you into Google and see what happened. 153 million page results come up. There's been some study, some scholarly study on why that was so effective. Then I dug a little deeper and found YouTube videos that contain nothing but that little clip from the end of PBS. So I decided to read through some of the comments on it. One of these videos has over 300,000 views alone. Here are some of the things that people write about that, that little clip. Who remembers feeling special as heck when they would say thank you? Another, I had a huge obsession with this, fund, with this fundraising since I was in fifth grade. I literally looked this up just to watch it. I miss it. Every time I see or hear made possible by, I think of this. And one added, grew up on this. Wouldn't the church be so lucky as to have those kind of comments made about us? Do you hear the sense of belonging and ownership and community and engagement in these simple quotes? There is something about this bigger than Sesame Street. This is what we need for church as well. We must recapture the idea that all of this is made possible by you. Our worship, our community, our work, our vision, our program, our radical agenda of love is made possible by you. This is all yours. Stewardship isn't a trap or a pressure campaign. Imagine if we actually did stewardship like NPR or PBS. We would play the first, we would sing the first half of the hymn, then we'd stop, 
And we'll say, we will finish the other half of the hymn after we get 10 more pledges. We don't do it that way in church. Though it might be a good idea. Rather, what we do is the enactment of what we're called to do in life. To commit to something bigger than ourselves and to let go of worry. We are invited into a lifestyle of Christian philanthropy. So quickly, let's look at the scripture passage and see how this all ties in. I want to look particularly at verses 21 and 22. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away, gloomy and grieving. Now, this is interesting. The man comes up to Jesus in the verses leading up to 21. Do you remember what he tells Jesus? He says, I've already finished the Ten Commandments. I need a better challenge. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily go to God and ask for more of a challenge than the Ten Commandments all the time. But this text has been misused by the church to mean that Jesus wanted the man to give him all of his money. But really, Jesus is inviting the man to follow him and to not worry about his belongings. It is, a, it is an invitation to greater discipleship rather than a demand. Jesus is not asking for the man's money. Jesus is offering, rather, a sense of belonging in his movement regardless of possessions. Jesus looked at him and really saw the man and loved him. You only lack one thing. If you really say you've already finished all the other tasks, then here's a challenge. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not at the spiritual point that this man thought he was at. He only had one more thing to do, sell all his possessions and follow Jesus. Most of us will never be quite at that point. But we are invited to be part of the solution, the cause and the movement with Jesus all the same. I have one more thing to add, and it's, it's a way to kind of flip this on its head a little bit as we think about this season of stewardship. It's also a critique for PBS and, and NPR as well. For years, PBS and NPR, nonprofits and churches have liked to use the language of a sustaining gift. Any of you ever heard of an, a sustaining gift? The phrase sustaining means fundamentally that we're looking for gifts that are adequate enough to maintain the status quo in the world. By its very definition, sustaining is a conservative, life-support sort of effort. Looking at the world around us today, how many of us want to sustain what we see as the status quo environmentally, economically, socially, or politically, or even ecclesiastically? For generations, stewardship has been done in terms of sustaining gifts. Gifts that are offered in the hope of an outcome of things unchanged. Several years ago, I was invited uh, as a member. I'm a, on the board of commissioners uh, for the housing authority. I was in Colorado and am here as well in Milford. Um, to spend a Saturday with some of the top thinkers of HUD, uh, Housing and Urban Development. And they invited a special speaker that changed forever my understanding of this word sustaining and kind of problematized it. One of the speakers was the director of the renamed at the time 
Colorado Department of Local Affairs Office of Resiliency. I remember vividly as she explained the difference between sustaining something and working towards resiliency as a framework. And here's what they've come up with. The Resiliency Office supports and helps empower communities in building stronger, safer, and more resilient in the face of natural disasters and other major challenges. It coordinates overarching recovery and resiliency activities by collaborating with numerous multidisciplinary local, state, federal, and private partners in setting priorities, leveraging resources, communicating transparently, and delivering measurable results to shape an adaptable and vibrant future. An adaptable and vibrant future. Friends, in the face of adaptive change, unlike we've ever seen, sustaining gifts is no longer a paradigm. It's only the viewers, the first church members, who can make this institution resilient. Cleveland and the national offices of the UCC can't help us. The National Council of Churches won't problem solve it. Our association and conference won't do it for us. It's up to us to make sure this place is resilient for the future. So imagine stewardship this way. First Congregational Church of Fairfield coordinates overarching spiritual and community resiliency activities. Community resiliency activities, I love that. With numerous multidisciplinary local, conference, national, and private nonprofits and other partners in setting priorities, leveraging resources, communicating transparently, and delivering measurable results to shape an adaptable and vibrant future for the sake of Fairfield, Connecticut, and God's realm on earth. Our scripture today is Jesus' call not just to give to the church, but to transform our lives. This is the same message that my generation received from PBS's ending to Sesame Street, This is bigger than just you, and thank you for being part of it. Philanthropy, the love of people, requires resiliency now. Resiliency is not about saving what was. It's about creating a future in a time that doesn't even see value for tomorrow. It is no longer time for sustaining gifts, But now is the time for gifts given with an intention of resiliency. Today is the day for us to give and vision a time in need of resilient faith communities like ours. And I think that would definitely make Reverend Big Bird proud and Reverend Grouch a little less grouchy. This worship service was made possible by the Holy Spirit. And by contributions to this local church from viewers, believers, and the faithful like you. Thank you. Amen. Amen.